Hello and welcome to What Goes Around podcast. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And I am Eamon Murtagh. It's good to have you here. Let me tell you a little bit about what is on the podcast today. We're going to kick off. Well, let me ask you a question. What kind of person, what kind of sociopath doesn't watch films? chooses to not watch films just completely cuts that aspect of culture out of their life i'll tell you who eamon murta and i'm going to take him to task over it in today's episode she's over egged that like a cake with too much egg in it. well that's all very well and good instead of being a, a miserable angry person i'm going to be optimistic and happy and spread the uh, joyous feeling of spring in the air and um, possibly some light at the end of the covid tunnel and while i'm making eamon feel bad <laughs> despite the fact that he's trying to feel good. I'm also going to take him to task over the fact that he implanted an earworm into my brain recently and uh, I cannot get it out, so I'm going to be looking for his best tips. What is the cure for an earworm? Let's see if uh, we can figure that out. And listeners, do check out the playlist this week. It's going to be a beauty. (laughs) We can tell by your laughter that it's going to be good. A playlist that makes you laugh. That's always tempting. Yeah, it's one you won't forget. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Let's pod, shall we? Let's pod. Podding! DJ Anne Frankenstein, Queen of the Airwaves, please tell us what is going around. I have a bone to pick with you. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Because uh, in the previous series, you made a snarky reference to what you called soundtrack people. I've dug a little deeper on this subject. I know you've got form in this department and that that soundtrack people remark, you dismissed them with such a snobbish air. I knew that was uh, an indication of something that goes a little bit deeper. And um, I know you were traumatized by a previous experience working at a cinema and it kind of put you off film. But I didn't realize that you really just don't like watching films at all. You're inclined to think that they're a waste of time. I mean, obviously, we all know you're the king of the music documentary and you're up to speed on every single music documentary that's probably available to view uh, on any platform ever. But in terms of uh, of actual feature films, it seems like you're you're not a fan. And we had an off-air conversation a little while ago uh, about, well... Just off the top of my head, I was thinking about feature films, which you must watch before I can allow our friendship to continue. One of which was Whiplash, which is, um, I mean, it's a Hollywood film, but it's one of the only films or things in life that I've ever had high expectations of, which met my expectations. Um, And we'll go into that. But I just want to, I want to pick this bone with you. About why it is that you um, can't get over your fear of the feature film, even music related ones. Well, thank you for that warm stabbing in the back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have to hold you accountable. That's what friendship is all about. Yes, yes, indeed. No, listen, it's not that I don't like films. I do like films, but as you mentioned, I was, um, uh, so I, I, I did want to be an actor at one stage and I trained as an actor and um, I got a job in the cinema as part of my um, 360 degree education and I watched every film that was released through the Hollywood uh, machine mm. for a good three and a half years or so and it literally kicked all the life out of my, <laughs> my acting ambition and throttled most of the joy that I had for cinema. Because if you watch everything, 
and I mean everything, and not just once, if you watch everything 10 times minimum, you just begin to see the kind of uh, the, the the watermarks and the, mm. the tried and tested mechanics that um, big studios tend to use to to sort of you know play with people's emotions and and to tickle little parts of their brain you know in the wizard of oz where they're all like excited they go oh the wizard of oz oh, here he is. and then the screen falls away and it's a little fat guy like with a big microphone it like just talking to them it's a bit like that jeez who hurt you you could say the same thing about music. I mean, you know, well, music has certain hallmarks that it plays on in terms of playing with your emotions and drawing you in and et cetera, et cetera. And that's There's true. a formula there too, you know, a whole Tin Pan Alley formula. It's a similar sort of thing. But it's a lot easier to sidestep the crap in music because I know where it's coming from and I know how mm. to avoid it. Like, you got to remember, I, I had to watch every single film and I had to watch... I watched Crocodile Dundee 2... <laughs> 47 <laughs> times in two weeks. 47 times. That'll do it. I was so bored, I gave myself cramp. <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. I sat there in the dark, right? And I was just flexing my toe and then it kind of cramped up. You know that glorious feeling when you cramp kind of, ah! and then you go, oh, and you just release it again. And it kind of calms down again. And you think, oh, that's right. That's kind of fun, that release. Uh, and I was really bored, so I went, I'll have to do that again. So, ah! And then I started doing it to the next toe and then kind of like the bottom of my foot. And then before I knew it, I mean, you have to be in a real zen state of boredom to do this. Before I knew it, um, I cramped the entire bottom half of my leg and I couldn't uncramp it. <laughs> and I couldn't make any noise because I was the one that was supposed to tell people to be quiet. And so I had to hop <laughs> in the dark up the thing in absolute agony and haul myself and throw myself into the toilet and go, ah, my fat! <laughs> and try and lie on the floor and stretch my own foot out like some footballer in the 95th minute of the World Cup final. And that is bored. This is a genuine traumatic event that we can trace everything back I to. I watched Crocodile Dundee 2, not even Crocodile Dundee 1. <laughs> I watched it 47 times in two weeks. I could not only recite the entire film, I could... I could act out the pauses and tell you what was happening on screen in real time, should you require it. I think it is time, and I'm sure people listening would agree with me, I think it is time for you to delve back into the world of film. I think it's time for you to get over your your cramp so, crocodile. Not every film is like Crocodile Dundee 2. In fact, I'd say not any film is like Crocodile Dundee 2. That's true. But, you know, it wasn't just Crocodile. You know, I, I, watched, I watched good films. Like mm -hmm. The Cray Twins was a very good film. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that that traumatised me is that, you know, it's quite a violent film. And uh, we weren't allowed to leave the cinema during it. And I, I don't know, repeated viewings of something gruesome like them stabbing some guy in the mouth with You're a saber sword. I'm picturing Clockwork Orange. Yeah, it was, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> I was basically the guy with his eyes being pulled open, being forced to watch the craze oh, over and dear. over again. And the worst thing about the craze was, you know, I got to the point where I just, I couldn't bear this scene. It was just too horrible for me. I just, it, I just didn't like the whole feeling because it was well done. Mm. You know, in fairness, it was like it, it, it packed a punch and it, it didn't, it didn't trivialise that violence. It was well done. And I can remember just sitting on the back, closing my eyes when I knew this scene was coming and listening to the fucking horrible Foley sounds of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so good films, bad films, you see them often enough. They can, they can mess you up. But, I, but listen, uh, no, 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 let me finish. Let me finish. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to think I don't love good cinema. I do love good cinema. What I do 
unfortunately, though, is I need to make a pack of myself. Or I made a pack of myself a long time ago. I will not waste my time watching something that is formulaic or trite or, you know, massively disappointing in terms of like story. Unless I know it's going to be that when I go in. Like it, So I watched Watchmen and that was a, a pretty terrible film, but it looked exactly like the comic. And that's basically what I wanted. So that was fine. I knew it would be rubbish. It was rubbish, but it was pretty rubbish. And I can deal with that. Um, what I can't do is watch a film that kind of has pretensions of being more than that, of, of, of having something big to say. And then it'd be a massive letdown. Like Avatar, I can't believe that won an Oscar. I I was dragged through that film by the special effects and it really wasn't... That sounds really painful, doesn't it? Dragged by the special effects. If you took away all of the visuals, right, and you just listened to what... If you were like me, closing your eyes in the backseat of the cinema, <laughs> wishing you were somewhere else, and just listened to the dialogue, oh, my God. You put a bullet through your brain in the first reel, I'm telling you. Listen, first of all, getting an Oscar is not a marker of a good film. I mean, I think that's historically a well-known fact. And also, bad cinema is everywhere, the same way that bad music is everywhere. And it's easy to avoid. I mean, I hate bad cinema too. Uh, you know, I, I have quite a short attention span. And so something has to be really good to capture my attention. But there are some films that will give you a visceral musical experience in the way that even oh, a yeah. great album can't. I'm, I'm much more likely to... to, to take on a, a musical film to be honest well, uh, watch Whiplash what's well, your problem with Whiplash I recommended it to you the other day and you uh, took some issue with it and then uh, you know our guest came on the line and we couldn't finish our conversation <laughs> so let's let's have that out right, right now what what are your aspersions about Whiplash so I can set you right okay so so a friend of mine uh, who, whose opinion I trust quite deeply he was uh, telling me that uh, what he didn't like about the film was that it kind of perpetuates this thing about um if you want to be really brilliant at something, a good way of teaching someone that is to be essentially mean and horrible to them about it, to push them to the point of breaking so that they can overcome whatever's holding them back. Now, that's fine. I'm sure it's a good movie. I'm sure it's it's very nice. But again, it's one of those things. <laughs> so patronising. I'm sure that movie you like is very nice indeed. Well, I'm sure it is. You know, <laughs> I, you know, if you, you know, I don't want to watch someone being pushed to the point of breaking. I, I, ah, this is the other thing, right? And I know you'll agree with this. Are you one of those people that can watch, you know, 999 Ambulance Hospital Disaster films? Oh, no, no, Oh, no, you, no. do you see what I'm talking no. about? You don't yes. like the realistic operation sounds, do no. you? You don't like the actual trauma of those people. You don't no. like the abject misery of some of the outcomes. No. I don't understand people who want to put themselves through that every week. So, oh, me neither. The films I like are kind of talky, thoughtful films. Ken Loach. Mm -hmm. Ken Loach does some amazing films for me. Uh, he, the way he works with his improvisation and he gets such a realistic portrayal of things uh, coming across. It. I really admire his work and I've, I've loved lots and lots of his films. But like when I, Daniel Blake, came along, I just oh, I couldn't put myself through mm, it. I, I was, you know, life is miserable as mm. it is. I know it's terrible out there. And the idea of going to watch it. And coming out just, oh, God, there are people out there like that, having that terrible a time. I just didn't want to do it. it to me, it was just like police carnage on Channel 5. You know, mm. I, I just don't want to see that. So for me, it, there's two things, really. Um, I, I absolutely hate having my time wasted. Some Sorry. Things, 
<laughs> but some films are like three and a half hours long now and you just oh, think yes. fuck's yeah. sake yeah, yeah. take a pair of scissors to it it won't kill you <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like um you know double albums and concept albums and that sort of thing they can be great but honestly i reckon there are less than 10 really top quality double albums in the world ever mm. i'm not you know and listen people write in do you know the twitter account yeah at what goes pod same for the the Gmail. What goes pod at Gmail? Come tell me I'm wrong. Tell me the double albums that are that are really great. And Recommend I'm... some films to Eamon. Tell him some films which won't waste his time. I just plucked Whiplash out of the air, and I am going to set him straight on what it's all about. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> but if listen. you've got any more recommendations, do send them through whatgoespod at gmail dot com. I think it's time to help Eamon get over his cinema trauma. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably do need help. I'm less than Vietnam vet from the Canon Cinema chain. You are. But, you know, I, I do still love a good film. And when I get the chance to watch something really good, I, I will watch it. But you know what? A lot of the time people come up to me and they say things like, oh, man, have you seen the new Avengers film? Have you seen, you know, mm. and I'm just like, I, there is no fucking way on earth I'm going to spend two or three hours watching the Avengers films mm. and come out of there thinking, well, that was a good use of my time. <laughs> well, listen, I'm the same as you. I mean, you know, uh, my favourite genre of film is like something that was made in the 1970s where someone slowly and subtly goes mad through a series mm. of conversations filmed beautifully. And, you should you know, have gone to school with me. That's basically my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a lot older than me, Eamon, don't forget. Um, <laughs> but um but uh, my poor my poor dear boyfriend tim um is kind of into that marvel stuff more so than me mm. and so uh, you know you know relationships compromise and all yeah. that um we've gone to the imax to see avengers films before and in terms of i never ever thought i'd be the kind of person who would get any kind of enjoyment out of you know, those hammy sort of cliched, terrible one-liners, like special effects, explosions, superheroes, whatever. But if you can just switch your brain off and just sit and allow mm. it to wash over you, it's mm. quite a nice bit why, of escapism. Why would I want to do that? I'm not <laughs> recommending that you do that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying I surprised myself mm. by changing my cinema habits. And going back to Whiplash, yes, I can understand that that's your friend's perspective on the film. I don't think it's making a statement particularly that if you want to be great you have to suffer and someone has to be mean to you it's more that I mean you're talking about films that go on too long the editing you know forgive the pun but the editing in this film is just as tight as a drum the mm. tension builds up oh it's as tight as a drum I see what you've done there <laughs> I can tell why you're a professional <laughs> thanks very much but uh, but you know the, the tension builds without you even really realising it and it's highly ambiguous whether you know even right up until the end it's very ambiguous what kind of statement they're even trying to make whether mm. or not the teacher is the the villain or the hero or neither of those things what the outcome is going to be it's just a very clever film and you know there's lots of uh, amazing drumming in it there's lots of buddy yeah. rich in it and stuff like that i think that will be a good entry point i would love to hear your thoughts on that film if, will... if you can spare me 90 minutes of your time <laughs> yeah. friend I'll bet, it, I'll bet it's more than 90 minutes for a start <laughs> I bet it's two hours something. All right.
Dr. Eamon Murda of Hackney. (laughs) (laughs) Honorary doctor. Uh, Eamon Murda, please tell me what goes around. Well, I am feeling sunny and springy and special and lovely. Um, For the first time in many, many months, um, I've got a little, little spring in my step. Not only because the weather is changing and the sun is out, but I have my jab booked in. I'm going to be vaccinated, which is good. And all you tinfoil hat people, just that's fine. You be mental. I don't care. I'm just going to not die of COVID if I can. Um, But the plus side of all that is that, you know, um, I've also got an email saying gigs are starting again in April. (gasps) We're coming out of the Ice Age, mate. Exciting. This edition of the Ice Age feels like it lasted 10 times longer than the first one. Oh, God, yeah. Because I, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I was kind of, I was kind of resigned to it. I was like, ah, it's winter, lockdown. What does it matter? It means I won't have to go on so many horrible walks. <laughs> but actually, I really felt it. Like not being able to go to restaurants. You know, you and I played a couple of gigs in that little break yeah. we had in the middle. It was just like a really unfair little teaser. Yeah, you know, it, it was so bad. Like so, the one of the big hotels I play. Um, I started playing there. And lockdown was called. And then um, finally came back, got the green light, played one gig, got it shut down again. You know, it's it's been like that. And I know what you mean. I love the way you complained about having to go on these horrible walks. (laughs) (laughs) So fucking bored of my horrible walks. (laughs) Don't make her walk, wheel her around. (laughs) Winter wasn't, it wasn't as much fun as summer, Mm. to be honest. It was really beautifully hot at the start of March. And also, I think there was a novelty factor. It was all very, um, you know, uh, blitz spirit until what's-his-name had his eye test at the castle. And <laughs> then basically, you know, all of the all of the goodwill disappeared, certainly in London anyway, and yeah. everyone was just out for themselves again. That was Grimsville. Yeah, that was a bit like, in the beginning, obviously it was terrible and scary and all the rest of it, but it did feel a little bit like summer holidays. Like, what? Yeah, I don't have to work and it's really sunny outside (laughs) for months and months. Okay. Yeah, there was a lot of sitting in in my luxurious Hackney car park drinking cider. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, you can still do that this summer. Um, I suppose. Talk to me about your your upcoming gigs. Have you thought about what it's going to be like to get back on the decks again? You'd be obviously been doing your stream of dreams so you're not going to be that rusty in professional football they say you know if you are are you fit yeah he's fit to play and then they say are you match fit right and this is the difference this is where it is like because match fit means you've had a couple games you're up to speed you get on the pitch and you can play at top top level you know Mm -hmm. and I feel like um I'm definitely fit but I'm not match fit for all the all the mad ones do you know what I mean I'm not not ready for all the requests and stuff because I have had the best time doing my streams. Oh my God, it's been a revelation because A, I met loads of brilliant people from all around the world who were really kind and, and, and you know, helped me out and kept me company. No requests. Mm. I mean, I have I maybe had one request in the last six months and I said no. <laughs> but, the, but the great thing is because, you know, they're, they're sitting there and they're, they're like, they don't have to show up. It doesn't cost them anything. So if they show up, they come to hear me play. And I have been able to really just play whatever I want. Mm. Three hours a week, whatever I fancy, dipping in and out of genres. I've, you know, I've, I've played poppy, cheesy 80s and then I've gone super deep gospel blues. I've played drum and bass. I've played 
house music. I played disco. I played soul. I played like really random weird things. I played old indie tracks. There was one week where I just played a load of things like The Clash and stuff like that. Mm. The one thing that's kind of held it all together is that, uh, you know, I'll go everywhere and in the end we end up on Disco Mountain. <laughs> and, I, and I play I play some, some crazy, stupid, slightly silly disco. And that journey every week to get to that point has just been delightful. Mm. And it's been so freeing. And I feel like a lot of these mixes that I've made have been some of the best things I've done because it really has just been following my nose. Do you know what I mean? People leave you the fuck alone to do what it is you're good at without interfering and fucking everything up with no understanding (laughs) of what it is you're actually trying to do with years of experience behind you as a DJ. Can you feel the bitterness dripping Ooh. out of this podcast, people? <laughs> oh, man. But you know what? I, I, I so relate to that. The, the further I get into broadcasting and presenting radio shows, the less tolerance I have for playing live and people request. Because it's like, yeah, it's true. It's like if you're streaming or if you're presenting a radio show, people don't like it. You're just like, well, fuck off then. Yeah. Go, yeah. <laughs> like just yeah, go somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. There is no point hanging around here. Look, we're, we're on the internet, mate. There's, yeah, exactly. you, you just Google something else. Exactly. You'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. So it really is. It's like you're speaking to your core audience who want to be there, you know, and it's like they're mm. your people. What's really nice is when you've had a couple of months of doing that and you are just following your nose and you are being, you know, genuinely having an eclectic time of it because you don't need to worry about whether everyone's going to be pissed off at you or not um then after a while they get used to your blather and then and then they go with you and it's just been fabulous so i am ready more than ready i love playing live i i'm not like you i like music um <laughs> i've said that before i'm like so cruel um but i'm i'm more than ready to play again it'd be very exciting i'm really looking forward to it i don't know i feel like i'm gonna try and just and not capitulate. I'm going to try and just stick to my guns with what I play and mm. and try and bring that out more because I, I honestly think it is a better show. time of the week and Frankenstein what goes around well I wanted to talk to you actually I've got a bone to pick with you oh not again (laughs) (laughs) you picked more bones than the local fox I know (laughs) but this is less of a personal no it is kind of a personal attack it's always personal (laughs) recently recently I was complaining to you about a song that I had stuck in my head Mm. and I can't even remember what that song is now because after I spoke to you about it you started telling me about a friend of yours who went to a club and heard the Peter Kay version of Is That The Way To Amarillo (laughs) and that song that song Eamon replaced whatever earworm I had before and has been stuck in my head non-fucking-stop since we had that conversation so I would like to know I've been reading up about this. Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, has a book called Music Ophelia. Have you read that book? No, but I love Oliver Sacks. He's, He's great. brilliant. But it's, it's a really interesting book. And there's actually a whole chapter about earworms and a sort of theory about whether or not the way to get rid of an earworm is to listen to the entire, entire song the whole way through, oh, which no. I, I just no, have not no, had no, the no, guts no. to do. I cannot bring myself to I listen just, to the Peter Kay version of it. That just impounds it into your brain. That just makes it twice as bad, I'm well, sure. This is what I'm worried about. But could it get any worse? I mean, every time my brain is in a resting state, the song pops in. So mm. tell me about your your 
cures. Is there a cure for an earworm? Well, what is I think I, I think it's like um, uh, it's like children. Right, you know, if uh, if a child wants to do something that's distracting, I want to stick my fingers in the plug socket. There's no point standing in front of them saying, don't stick your fingers in the plug socket. That won't work. That'll just make it look even more attractive. That'll just make them think about it even more. Why can't I stick my fingers in the plug socket? The plug socket's still there. I could do it in five minutes, you know, and just... Is exactly the wrong tack. You mustn't mm. do that. You must not do that. What you must do is distract, distract, distract. Mm. So you always go, you know, oh, look, there's a unicorn in this book. And then they go, oh, where? You know, and then, uh, you know. So what you need to do is that to your brain. So what I try and do is I have a number of, um, how, how can I put this, like wormy songs that are just earwormy enough to wean you off whatever was in you. And I think if you chop and change enough, mm. you chop and change three or four times between various earworms, uh, they're kind of awful out of your brain. It's like they can't, your brain can't hold that much catchiness. So do you, you mean I, I need to find a track that's marginally less objectionable than Peter Kay? Is this the way to Amarillo? Yeah, so I normally okay. start with the Spanish flea. You know, you know that. See now already, Amarillo is is quite a long way away, and you don't know the way to it anymore. Yeah, um, but then of course you've got the problem that you've got the Spanish flea in your head. So then you've got to do uh, something else that is um, equally. Oh, and not so the idea is to like it's like. Um, Coming off heroin, you know, you use methadrone. <laughs> or, you know, you've got to have your, your your slightly less destructive drugs on your way down to being, you know, straight. So it's like a so, course of therapy, really. You can't just... It's oh, and you a... did, yeah, you've got to wean yourself off this stuff. Yeah. Bit you know, of meth, bit, <laughs> little bit of smoke, like, little a bit of meth. If meth of is the answer, <laughs> if meth is the answer, Eamon, I'm clean and sober, but I'll do it. I'll do it if it gets rid of this blasted song out of my head. I think the worst kind of earworm now, I mean, this is very bad, don't get me wrong, but I think mm. the worst is when you have an instrumental, a section of an instrumental part of a song mm. stuck in your head and it makes it impossible to actually trace what the song is because you can't Google the lyrics. You can't remember what it is. Usually if you do oh. discover what it is, it's completely different to what you thought it was. You know, just playing like a loop in your head, driving you yeah. completely insane. What's the worst earworm you've ever had? Um, oh, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I listen, if I remember that. Actually, yeah, don't tell me. <laughs> That'll be bad. But i tell you what my brain does that's specific in terms of earworms, is uh, when I'm going to sleep, if my brain hasn't got a list of things that it thinks I've done wrong in my life, oh, that it wants to go through as I shut my that's eyes. That's that Irish upbringing. <laughs> yeah, you uh, do you remember, do you remember that day in 2002 when you said the wrong thing to the vicar? Do you remember? Um, yeah, so if, if when that isn't happening, which is is not very often um, that, that I'm free of that particular bit of um, agony, but I'll quite often get a, a song. But what happens to me is I don't get the whole song. Mm. I get like a line of it, mm. and there, I like um, there's a track by Steely Dan called "Show Business Kids," and I think um, Super Furry Animals did a cover version of it where they they just sing this line: "It's show business kids making movies of themselves. You know they don't give a fuck about anybody else." Mm. I just had that in my head looping for about six months once. It's that bit they don't give a fuck about anybody else. That was the Super Furry Animals yeah, bit that yeah, they yeah. took and said. Okay, I'm trying to ignore that right now. I'm trying to think about that objectively without getting <laughs> absorbed into my brain. 
Well, that's that's no help. <laughs> I mean, it's cathartic, but you're the one who gave me this problem in the first place. No, no, you, just you need to just have a, a a load of songs that you can that you can distract your brain with. So, like, you've got a Spanish flea. Then you can have a Red River Rock. Boop 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 Oh, God, we're going to ruin This is such an insight into your psyche that you have a hierarchy of irritating songs. These are cleansing songs. These are songs that take away whatever the earworm is. And like I say, once you've gone through, once you've had Spanish Feed, you've gone Red River Rock and you've done Baby Elephant, then whatever comes next, they all fall out of your brain at once. I would just like to apologise to everybody listening to this podcast for all of the terrible tunes that we've just put in their head. And on and the playlist by forget. default. Oh shit! Oh I no, the playlist. Spotify playlist. <laughs> Guys, don't listen to our Spotify playlist this week if you know what's good for you. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Joining us to share his phonographic memories is a journalist who has had a hand in many legendary music publications. He was the editor of Smash Hits in its early 80s heyday. He also launched magazines like Mojo, Q and Empire. He's a broadcaster and presenter who fronted the old grey whistle test and was famously sworn at by Bob Geldof on the BBC during Live Aid. He's released many best-selling books too about pop and rock music and in praise of the LP, a subject obviously that's very close to our hearts. And he hosts a brilliant podcast of his own with Mark Ellen called... uh, a word in your ear, or more recently, a word in your attic. David Hepworth, thank you so much for being here. Nice to be here. So you're here to share your phonographic memories uh, with us. Um, But can we talk first about your uh, career as a music journalist? Because when I say you were the editor of Smash Hits in its heyday, I was so I was kind of a child of the 90s, but I was so obsessed with Smash Hits magazine. And it was a real gateway for me into loving music. And I loved it so much that I went into secondhand bookshops and I bought up a pile of, uh, of copies from like the early 80s and mid 80s. Um, can you talk about your memories of Smash Hits at that time and what it meant and what it was all about? Because it sort of mutated into something slightly different later on. Uh, well, yeah, it changed lots of times, I suppose. I joined it in uh, 1979, I think it would be. Yes, uh, just after it, it, the first few issues were monthly. It was launched by Nick Logan. And uh, Nick I knew because he'd been the editor of The NME. And uh, so I worked with Nick and then I became the editor, and I suppose, 1981, something like that. And I had a, I had a couple of re- years running it as editor and then I was editorial director of the company that, uh, you know, that published it and published loads of other magazines as well. And so, you know, it grew massively during the 80s. And, uh, you know, what I remember about it is that whenever you promoted it or you did anything new with it or you put a new plastic gizmo on the cover of it or whatever 
it sold more copies because there were just huge numbers of teenagers going and they all went into news agents at the time and they all bought magazines, you know. Mm. So it was, it was an immensely buoyant market, you know. And so you, to a certain extent, you, could, you kind of couldn't do anything wrong, you know. <laughs> and there's a huge amount happening in pop music and British pop music and there's a huge revolution in video presentation and so forth. And so there's massive emphasis on colour. And so everything was going in smash its favour. And the thing I think about it most nowadays is, uh, you know, many years later, is that if you, you know, I, I find with my with my fellow former editors of Smash Hits, if you're ever called upon to address any gathering of any kind anywhere in the world, from the most serious business conference to a, a wedding or whatever, if it all goes wrong, you can just say, there used to be a magazine called Smash Hits. I was the editor. Did anybody used to read it? And you will be guaranteed there will be somebody in the room who will remember it and will remember it very warmly. You know, in your case, you kind of inherited it from an earlier generation, that affection. But that affection is definitely there to the extent that my colleague Mark Allen um, the other day went for his uh, COVID jab and it was administered by a former reader of Smash Hits. You know, <laughs> you just thought this is absolutely fantastic. Well, I, I think the place it was read most, apart from, you know, as you say, at kind of lunchtime or playtimes or whatever, the other, the other great kind of uh, venues for Smash Hits reading, which was tended to be done something done communally, were uh, mm. the bus stop and the bus uh, and the bus yes. itself. You mm. know, what I mean. Uh, and you get on, you know, if you got on a bus and you go on upstairs or whatever, there'd always be a load of 13, 14 year olds chucking around a copy of Smash Hits, reading bits out of it, you know. And uh, I realized that the, 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 the era of magazines was not going to continue when I started getting on buses or trains or whatever. And there were teenagers and just looking at their phones. Mm. And that, that is the space into which you know, a magazine like Smash Hits used to be published. You know, it was that bit of downtime was was when it was read. And, um, and you know, people used to kind of commune with their friends via copies of Smash Hits. Well, now they do it directly via social media or, or whatever. It's sort of Blue Peter time in lots of senses. And one of the things, you know, I often think about how amazing it is that you could... You could put badges on the cover of magazines, yeah, tiny badges. Yeah, but you cause real excitement yeah. in the lives of kids. You know, yeah. that, a badge or a flexi disc or, you know, that you cut out tokens and you would save them week in, week out, you know, in order to have to have a reward six weeks down the line. Nobody would do that anymore. Yeah. And the most amazing thing is that every night, thousands, of kids would go to their rooms, get out their friends' forever notepaper and their <laughs> multicolored pens, and they would write long letters to Smash mm. Hits yeah. about about their pop favorites. I mean, actually write, and then go and put it in an envelope, and then go and get a stamp. Get these kids a stamp, <laughs> and go and post it, and then wait to see. You know, yeah, so in that weeks. sense, they were they were kind of. <laughs> They were living in the era of Jane Austen rather than now. You know, it's inconceivable now. Oh, it's making me so wistful. And it's funny you're talking about that way. You know, you're talking about multicolored pens and friends forever notebooks and a touch of blue Peter. But it still had enough edge 
um, you know, to make my mum raise an eyebrow. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, it, even more, even more to the point, you know, they, the magazine are launched subsequent to it, just 17, which somebody, mm. somebody was asking me about the other day. And, uh, you know, it staggers me that, you know, people used to stand up in Parliament and ask questions about about the kind of <laughs> sexual, you know, sexual aspects of Just 17, which incredibly tame if you look at it nowadays. Oh, I wasn't allowed to read that at all. That was ba- I had to read it well, in a they, friend's they, house. They, it was banned from my household. There you go. But, you know, <laughs> well, now it's all gone away and we have social media instead, you know yeah. what I mean? So... So I'll leave it to those members of Parliament to judge whether, you know, which was the, which did the most harm to, uh, <laughs> yeah, to uh, teenage lives. I'm yeah. just going to say, because uh, while you mentioned um, the badges and smash hits, I'm sat here in my little, little music grotto that I have in the corner of my house. And uh, in, in my desk, I've got all sorts of little knickknacks and stuff. And I've just found... Wow. Badges. Oh, wow. What, That's what my, have you little, got? my little bag of badges that I've kept from, from the 80s, basically. <laughs> I've got, oh, there's all sorts in here. Yeah, they've, got, they've got Clash badges, there's the vibrators, whatever happened to them. Dams. <laughs> all, all this good stuff. There's a Duran Duran one there. So there you go. Even to this day, these, these artifacts exist in time. Well, absolutely, around. yeah. They won't, they, there's no landfill that could possibly <laughs> take them, I suppose. Yeah, hang on to them. They'll come back. But this is what, you're, this is what your podcast more recently is, is all about, David. Word in your attic. It's about people digging through their little artifacts of pop nostalgia. And I imagine you to have a house full of this stuff. Is your house just, is your attic just full of smash hits badges and little bits of pop ephemera? I, I don't keep as much as Mark Ellen actually I, I've got although I've got I'm looking I'm just reaching out here I find myself I've got a I've got a, a Frankie Goes to Hollywood duffel bag oh, uh, which, is, oh, which, is, which is rather beautiful thing actually and uh, I, I, I keep meaning to try and find the right home for it because I haven't got the heart to chuck it out uh, the king now, of, of Dalston I've, with I've, that <laughs> yes, I probably would be, wouldn't I? And uh, you know, I've got loads of records. I hang on to records, mm. but I don't. You know, people say, "Oh, you have got a big record collection." I would say, "No, it's not collection. It's accumulation. It's a <laughs> different thing. It is because c- collection kind of implies that it's got some organising principle behind it, which it hasn't at all. You know, because that's the curious thing is that is that people nowadays, now that this stuff has all gone away. People collect it more than ever, mm. whereas they never yeah. did back in the day. You know, yeah. back in the day, the golden age of vinyl, if you like, in the seventies, you know, uh, in the early eighties or the seventies, when I worked in, I worked in HV, HV in Oxford Street. You know, nobody ever bought two cop two copies of something, one in order to keep in a glass case or something, <laughs> yeah. you know, to see if it accumulated in value. It never entered anybody's head, you know. Yeah. When Sergeant Pepper came out with those little, you know, cut out mustaches and so forth on the on the bit of card inside Everybody did the same. We all cut them out, wore them, and then threw them away. <laughs> no, oh, that breaks my heart. It's a war no, crime now. No, well, absolutely. But it just goes to show the different attitude towards this stuff now. It's reverential, whereas it never used to be at all. When you see pictures of uh, pop stars and famous people back in the day with records, like you know, these kind of 
classic old shots of Muhammad yeah. Ali or some model or Twiggy or something like that. The, the records are always out of their sleeves all over the bloody floor. And it oh, well, that, me, that, that, was classic, that was the classic kind of uh, photograph, uh, photographer's cliche, that was. <laughs> you know. I, I, if you, in fact, if, you, if you're ever really bored, go on, uh, go on one of the photo agency's websites and just look up film stars with records. You will find millions of pictures of, like, Brigitte Bardot, Joan mm. Collins, very often glamorous, you know, female rock star, film stars, living in their apartments. And some some photographers come round to, to, to deliver a photo spread about how they supposedly live. And they strew loads of records all over the carpet around them because it was the... Um, it was the kind of sign of of the luxury life we would all like to live at the time. I mean, you'd have to be pretty have... decadent to just empty all your records uh, out on the floor and ruin them. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And most people wouldn't have enough to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It was only in a photo session that that would happen. Um, before we get into your first phonographic memory, I just want to ask you about something that um, you have in common with myself and Eamon and also a lot of guests we've had on the podcast before, which is that you uh, worked in a record store. Was that one of your first jobs? And were you already obsessed with music by the time you started working there or did that facilitate your obsession? No, it happened earlier. I was I was obsessed with records from, you know, being a kid and a teenager and so forth. And I used to, every every night on the way home from school, I'd go past the local record shop just to look in the window, just to see if anything had changed. Uh, and, you know, then we'd go in and look at the new releases. And um, what I remember about records is you read them. Mm. You didn't listen to them, you read them. Because <laughs> you couldn't listen to them. You certainly couldn't afford to buy them, uh, but you read every every you know detail on the sleeve, as so that's how you got to know about a lot about music. No, I I I I went to college and I, I I qualified as a teacher and I taught for a year and I did, did various jobs in there, but then I got a job at HMV in, in Oxford Street and uh, and I was there for about three years I suppose, which is obviously that was at the time the biggest record job in the world, and. Um, and what you realise really quickly, you go into record shops knowing a lot about records and you realise how little you know <laughs> compared yeah. to absolutely There's always everybody. more, isn't it? That's the great truth about, you know. So people always say to me, oh, have you not heard so-and-so? I'll oh, give over. You know, it's not, <laughs> God's sake, it's, you know, we don't get a badge at the end of our lives. Has listened to most records, you know. It's just a word like that, you know. You know, I know I know a lot about certain things, but I'm I'm acutely aware of what I don't know, mm. uh, and how much there is. And, mm. and of course, nowadays it's even more to know, you know, because it's just the sheer amount of stuff just proliferates. And of course, the old stuff hasn't gone away, mm-hmm. and it's been joined by you know loads and loads of tide after tide of incoming newer stuff you know so uh, nobody can possibly keep track of it but the thing i find amazing when i think back i was thinking about it recently you know sort of 1976 or whatever when i was working in the hmv shop the only database that they had and it was a very well organized shop very well run the only database they had was a card index file which sat on the counter you know, there'd be a little card you'd pull out. You'd go, it was slightly doggy, and it said David Bowie, and somebody would have written in when the first record came out, and you know, and what the catalogue number was, all that sort of stuff. There's no internet; you couldn't find out. So if it wasn't on the card index, 
what you're relying on is the kind of elephantine memory <laughs> of the people who work there who had the longest hair, usually. <laughs> it tended to go with it, you know. And, they, and uh, nothing would excite these people more than a customer coming up to the counter going, you've probably not heard of this, but let me just try it on you. And they, they would just sit there and you know, buff their nails while they listened rather <laughs> bored to this person. So, and then they go, yeah, it's over there on solo artist D to E. It was ever you know. does. I think that's exactly that's, the same. That's the kick. <laughs> as it is that's the days. kick of working record shop. David, can you talk to us about your first phonographic memory? This is a cute one. Henry Hall, the teddy bear's picnic. Tell us about this one. <laughs> Uh, I, I tell you, it's a funny thing. Before lockdown, um, just as lockdown was about to happen, I was I was supposed to take part in a, an evening in London where three people, authors or whatever, picked the record that changed their life. Mm. And, and I, frankly, I, I, when somebody says that to me, I, I rather roll my eyes because I think. <laughs> I really don't know what you mean at all. You know, so seriously, think about that. Because like my old colleague, Paul Denoyer, used to say, I don't want a record to change my life. I like my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, um, but I, I, I decided that I wanted to talk about this one, partly because I, I thought well, this would probably be different from what anybody else chooses, but partly because when I when I looked at my Spotify, uh, Spotify send you a little kind of audit at the end of every mm. year, don't they? Mm. Where they say these are the tracks you've played most, and this was number one, the Teddy Bears Picnic by the Henry Hall Orchestra, and I thought that's really funny because the reason was I I made a playlist for my grandchildren, and uh, and so every time they come out they want to hear it, and so that that that's always there. But there's a kind of more serious point, really, which is that I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of uh, the Teddy Bear's Picnic by the Henry Hall, uh, Henry Hall and, and the unknown vocalist. If you go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you better go in disguise. For every bear that ever there was will gather there for certain because today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. The teddy bear's picnic, the thing about it that fascinates me, and, and every time I hear it, I never get bored of it, is that it's, it's um, well, first of all, it's a record rather than a song. And I think that's a really important distinction that people don't pay sufficient attention to. That, that you know, a record is to a song what a film is to a play. You know, it, it's a very specific performance. It's a very specific moment in time. It has... It has an atmosphere to it, which a song alone doesn't have. You know, it's it's how those things are put together. And this was recorded, I don't know, probably done, I might be done at Abbey Road, it might be done for the BBC, I don't know. In, in, in the late 30s, it was a dance craze, first of all, as an instrumental, and then somebody wrote words for it. 
<laughs> I wonder what the uh, what the author thought when uh, after people had got into his lovely instrumental and then someone just went, I'm going to make this about teddy bears. Well, no, it was already <laughs> it was already called the Teddy Bears Pink. Oh, right, OK. Well, that, because, that's more acceptable. Yeah, because there was a dance called the Teddy Bear, apparently. Oh. I've, I've done research on this. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. There's apparently fetus, the case. Fetus. And then they went, somebody run, wrote, wrote these, these bizarre words about, you know, if you get out of the woods to get today, you wouldn't believe your eyes. You're sure of a big surprise because every bear that ever were there was is gathered there for certain because today is the day that teddy bears have the picnic. And, and what fascinates me about teddy bears picnic is it's cosy and yet simultaneously vaguely sinister. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> and that is the beauty of it. And that's what makes it such a wonderful piece of, forgive me, art. Yes. You know, it is. You know, the, the, every single musician on that and, and, and the singer and whoever conducted it and whoever placed the single microphone, which will probably have been, been the, the only bit of technology involved, mm. you know, Managed to 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 make this just this perfect thing, and uh, and uh, you know it, it, so I, as I say I, I know I don't remember a time when I didn't hear it when I when I wasn't wasn't aware of it, and I and there is not a time when I hear it nowadays when I don't think wow yeah weird. it's an extraordinary thing, and and to watch my sort of three year old granddaughters. You know, jump up and down to it, and you think this is this will go on forever. This will, you know, <laughs> this good. is just a wonderful thing, and uh, and uh, you know, so I, and I think your childhood, your really early childhood, you know, attachment to music never really leaves you. You know, like Mark and I, mm. when we do word and you're at it, we often say to people, "What's the first record you ever bought, or whatever." And, and I always find when people say anarchy in the UK, I think, no, you, no. you liar. <laughs> you liar, you know, because we, we, all, we all go through that, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old phase where we just love comedy records, odd records, you know, things mm. off the telly, I don't know. And, and, and your attachment to those things is every bit as pure uh, it actually, probably purer than your mm. attachment to the Clash, or whatever, whatever is supposed to be hip, because it doesn't come with any baggage. Mm. You know, you, you don't decide to like the Teddy Bears Picnic because you think you'll impress your friends or anything like that. <laughs> you, you like the Teddy Bears Picnic, you know, and um, and it's also interesting to me that I think you know we we've listened to our favourite records so often that they are imprinted inside us. We carry them around with us mm. in a way that previous generations could never really have done. It's like, you know, like they often say, you know, if you'd gone to listen to Beethoven's Fifth when it was first unveiled, you would never expect to hear it again in your life. Mm. Yeah. Now that really changes your attitude mm, to it. Yeah, totally. Whereas, and, and so I remember, you know, when you heard records on the radio as as a kid, you wouldn't expect to well, you wouldn't expect to hear them again that week. Whereas nowadays, everything is perpetually on repeat, mm. and that really does change the way you respond to it. Uh, and so, you know, I think 
I think we do everything nowadays. All, all our media consumption, whether it's reading or it's movies or whatever, uh, or music, is done with our finger on the button, ready to take us away from it the second it gets boring. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and it wasn't like that in the past, you know. You gave I, things a break, you know. Yeah. We've had a, a number of people on here uh, sort of talking about hearing that song on the radio and then chasing it for like a decade or more, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and finally finding it somewhere finally. and then it being this moment of great reunification where they, they've finally got the, got hold of that memory and it's become a physical object. It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a lovely thing. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. It's, yeah, you know, quite. it's all there. Teddy Bear's Picnic appears on the Singing Detective soundtrack. And because of that, I've lost all the, the joy and fun of it, and I just see it as a really <laughs> sinister like audio horror film for myself now. No, I, I, I yeah, I know what you mean. I, I've, um, it's interesting. Uh, they, you, my actual favourite record of all time, I always tell people, I, I, I could... Listen, I could pick a different favorite record of all time every day, you know. But but I always say it's you never can tell by Chuck Berry, and uh, and they always say, oh yeah, Pulp Fiction. I always say I'm the only person in the world who has <laughs> never seen Pulp Fiction, and part of the reason I've never seen Pulp Fiction is I really don't want my relationship with Chuck Berry's You Never Can Tell spoiled yeah, or overlaid. With anything else, you know yeah. what I mean? Anything that attempts to kind of match its power. That's such a painful thing when you're DJing. If you have a track that you've known and loved and played out for years and years with very little reaction <laughs> from whoever's listening, and then all of a sudden it pops up on a film like that track, that Chuck Berry track, and now I know I can sort of play it safely in a certain kind of environment because everyone will be like, oh yeah, Pulp Fiction, yes. you know, and I'll dance to it. When previously they would have completely ignored it, it fills me with resentment. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose so, I suppose so. <laughs> Um, shall we move on to your second phonographic memory then? The Rolling Stones with satisfaction. Talk to us about this one. I've actually got it in front of me. I've got, I've got the, I've got the seven-inch mono copy which I bought in 1965. Uh, 1965 is the Annus Mirabilis of the of the seven-inch 45. You know, it's it's the the great Beatles records, the great Spectre records, the great Motown records, the great Beach Boys records. And the great Rolling Stones records, and uh, I, I I'd written a chapter about the making of this in my uh, most recent book, which is about British acts in America. Uh, it's called Overpaid, Oversexed, and Over There. And um, the story of how they did Satisfaction just fascinates me. They were staying in a, they're on tour, I think, for the fourth time in the state. States and they were playing. They were staying at Clear in Clearwater, Florida, and Keith was woken up in the middle of the night by this riff going through his head, and showing a very un-Keith Richards presence of mind. He had uh, a tape recorder by his bed, and so he he recorded this riff into the into the tape recorder. Following day, he played it to Mick Jagger, and Mick kind of came up with some words. A few days later, they were in. Um, Chess Studios in Chicago, uh, and they had a go at recording it. It didn't really work. And they did it again a week later in uh, at RCA Recorders in Hollywood, by which time Keith had got the little fuzz tone device, mm. um, which you could change the sound of, could change the sound of a guitar to sound like anything but a guitar. And he, he made this, uh, he made it 
to sound what he like what he hoped would be a horn section because he thought he ought to have a horn section because he'd heard Otis Redding's version of uh, I can't remember what, uh, which which record whatever but he'd heard Otis Redding at that point and he was very struck on horn sessions so they recorded it they did it twice Keith uh, Charlie up the tempo and uh, everybody in the room said that's a hit record with one exception Keith Richards because <laughs> Keith Richards couldn't hear what they could hear because oh. Keith Richards in his head heard it as having a horn section and therefore he thought the little noise of he thought that was really unsatisfactory kind of placeholder Everybody else in the room, engineer, Andrew Alden, Mick Jagger, all said, no, no, it's brilliant as it is, because that's the key production decision you can ever make, which is, that's enough, stop. Yeah. They put it out as a single, and, you know, the rest is history. It was number one all over the world, and, you know, and it was the first, you know, to, to, I wanted to write about it in my book because say, it, was, it was the first Rolling Stones record which was kind of about America. It was an American mm. record. It was about the American experience. fascinates me and it's a little bit similar to the teddy bear's picnic is that they have played it millions of times since they've never played it as well as they did that second they yes. played it they've always played it slightly too fast or slightly too slow or they just can't quite get it right and also when they play it now you know which god knows they're nearly 80 and they're still playing it they are competing with the thing that they will never beat, which is our memory of the original thing, which yeah. we've heard thousands of times. That's what's playing in our head when they play. They're competing with what's in our head. They're competing with what they put there. And uh, I just think it's a wonderful example of how um, I think records are magnificent accidents usually. Oh, we had uh, Sophie Scott, who's a, a neuroscientist on the on the show a little while back. And uh, she made the point that, you know, all this recording of songs and recording of voices is really very, very new in terms oh, of yeah, human yeah. history. Yeah. So, you know, the, you're kind of like the first generation to be able to capture one performance and keep it forever. Like you say, when, when they went to see Beethoven play his fifth for the first time, that might well be the only time they ever hear that played. Um, but w with the advent of these recording devices, suddenly 
you you have that moment and as you say that moment you you can tell it from all other attempts to recreate that oh, magic oh absolutely which musicians very often can't you know mm. because they've you know I tell you, if you go, you know, obviously nobody's playing at the moment, but one of the things that fascinates me, you go and see Paul McCartney. He's had this band now for probably the best part of 20 years. That band play his Beatles songs better than the Beatles ever played them because they've had to learn them. You know what I mean? They learn them from the Beatles. And uh, whereas, you know, the Beatles' experience of their own material was you know, the experience of writing it, recording it, and then playing it a few times. And then it was gone. Something else replaced it. They didn't sit there reverentially, desperately trying to work out how they got the guitar sound on, you know, Get Back or whatever, mm. which people have subsequently done. And, um, you know, because they're trying to get it to sound like the record. When the Rolling Stones play Satisfaction, they're not trying to get it to sound like the record, they're just playing Satisfaction. Whereas we in the audience, no, we want it to sound like a record. Yeah, Please, yeah. God, we want it to sound like a record. We'd like it to sound better, which is pretty impossible, really, you know. But, um, no, it, it fascinates me because, and Keith probably to this day still can't hear what was really good about Satisfaction. Because <laughs> I tell you what it's, it's a little bit like, you know, in my experience, I was talking to a writer about this the other day, and my experience of writing in magazines. And I think D Dr. Johnson, his advice to writers was, when you uh, have finished writing something, read it back, find the part that most pleases you and strike it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's, there's some truth behind that, which is it's always the bit you labour over most that you think is is the value. Mm. And it's very often not. Mm. It's very often the thing you hadn't thought about, the thing that seemed to you, you to be quite pedestrian. That works. Whereas, uh, whereas the thing you've laboured over, people go, still don't understand why you've bothered. <laughs> I think perhaps part of the, the magic that's caught on that record, as you say, is that it is one of the first songs they had, which is about America and about yeah. their experience and their reinterpretation of America. Now, you, how old are you, do you think, when, when that came out? And uh, when, you, when you first heard it, what, what did that, that bit of news from America feel like for someone who's, who's grown uh, up here? It was oh, just immensely exciting, you know, because because the, the whole thing about the Rolling Stones in in America, and they kind of they blazed the trail for loads of groups who went there afterwards, was they were simultaneously thrilled to be there, and and, and simultaneously they felt that they ought to be blasé about it, yeah, and so. Yeah. Those two things are what's going on in that song, you know what I mean? That, that I'm bored, I'm tired, I've got bombarded with sensation, you know. And you thought to yourself, my God, how great would it be to be bombarded with sensation so much that you were <laughs> bored about it and you were in America for crying out loud, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> that was the whole pose of the Rolling Stones was that they always, they always looked bored. And you thought, God, how cool would that be? And... Uh, it also, you know, there's something about the sound of that record that just appeals to the 15, 16-year-old boy particularly, I think. You know, it's a kind of... I think it's an immensely sexy sound still, you know. Mm. And um, I don't agree with the 
when people say all oh, the Rolling Stones kind of they, they they just stole a load of tricks from the blues and R and B or whatever. I think they did more than that. I think they transformed that stuff. I think they made it teenage. Mm. Uh, they they introduced the kind of annoyance and horniness, <laughs> if I can put it that way. That very often wasn't there in the original thing. You know, they just had that that remarkable ability, you know, and. Um, it, it, it's there. It's just there, perfectly in that song, um, and uh, you know, if, if I play it now, it, it, it still sounds amazing. And of course, you, what you've got to do is play it now on your original vinyl forty-five mono copy, because <laughs> because putting it on CD, uh, putting it in stereo, no, makes it worse. <laughs> Undoubtedly, you should always listen to music on the technology that was around at the time that the music came out, because that's the way you hear it best. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Motown records sound best on jukeboxes. Um, you know, early 60s, Everly Brothers records, early, I was thinking about this when Phil Spector died the other day. The Phil Spector records, I used to remember immensely, the immense thrill of going to the fairground and hearing a Phil Spector yeah. record. On a, on a ride that was going round past the speaker. So you got this strange strobing effect of the, of the, the music kind of distant then near, distant then near. And, uh, and he was immensely thrilling to hear music played at the fairground because that was one of the only places you could hear music played loud in those days. We have yeah. talked about we this extensively indeed, yeah. on this podcast. I think we should have a spin-off show about music for fairgrounds. But yeah, I'm <laughs> sorry, music and fairgrounds. I, it's probably gone away now. And I, you know, but it, it used to be a really powerful thing. Mm, it's nice. very well captured in the, um, you know, that'll be the day. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, what a great film that is, yeah. Because Ringo works on on the dodgems, doesn't he, or something like yeah. that. And yeah. uh, the, there was always some, some spivvy guy impressing the girls by holding onto the back of the dodgem, taking the money, while Roy <laughs> Orbison or the Everly Brothers or whatever played. It, it did continue that, though, because when uh, my first memories of proper amplified music were definitely from the fair. They were de definitely, uh, I had never heard music that loud and I'd never heard it. You know, it's the first time I heard a Marshall amp properly banging it out. Do you know what yeah, I mean? And that yeah. was that was a revelation to me. And I know um, going a little further down the line, I was a, a raver sort of uh, end of the 80s, start of the 90s. And um, the raving scene really got brought out to the provinces by the people who worked on the fair. Oh, really? so there, was a guy, there was a guy called Dave Prattley and he, uh, his family were part of the, 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 the Banbury fair scene. So they would, they would throw the, the, the big fair every year. And of course he was going in and out and all around London, all that sort of thing. And he was hearing this music and he had access to all these speakers and all these lights because of course that's what fairgrounds do. And so he then started putting on these parties and eventually became the promoter at Helter Skelter, which is one of the biggest rave organisations there was at the time. But that was all intimately connected with this kind of travelling sort of uh, slightly outside the law. Oh, absolutely. A bit too loud, a little it, bit reckless, a little bit disre scary. Disreputable and rash yeah, and lots yeah, yeah. of smoking going on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I think should, somebody should make a film about it, actually. Music of Fairgrounds. Somebody should yeah. do that. I think a good doc, wouldn't it? You yeah, would have thought so, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm interested as well, because it seems like a, a nice segue here. When you talk about um, 
that moment being captured on the record and it being this perfect thing that's then preserved for all time and and uh, that's kind of how you always want to hear it but your last choice is a jazz record and that's interesting as well when you think about it in those terms because of course jazz is never the same twice really your third choice is miles davis miles ahead the reason i i uh named this is that um and again it's a it's a kind of pre-lockdown memory i um there's a guy called richard pite who's a drummer and he runs the london jazz repertory company i think it's called and he got in touch with me a few years ago and he said he did he did concerts he put on concerts and he played in bounds and uh, they did concerts at the Cadogan Hall in Chelsea, where they would um, recreate um, some musical moment from the past or, or some particular, or pay tribute to some artist. And he, what he usually did was he get a, he get a narrator to sort of turn up and do little bits of chat in between the tunes as the, as the musicians, you know, gathered themselves. And uh, oh, he said, would I do one of these? And I went and did one of them. And, uh, and it was a very enjoyable experience. And, uh, and then he got me to do another one. And this was, was about Miles Davis collaborations with Gil Evans. And, uh, and uh, so I went down there. And I just, I just I had such fun doing it. And, and then I realized I didn't have those records, really. I got some of them, but, but no, not all of them. And so, and so I started playing them afterwards. And then as soon as the first lockdown finished, I had to make my way into town and buy Miles Ahead and, uh, and Porgy and Bess because I've become so obsessed with these records. You know, I, I know enough about Miles Davis to know I don't know very much about Miles Davis. Mm. You know, I've got a bunch of Miles Davis records and I haven't had them for years. And, you know, there's bits I'm familiar with and bits I'm not familiar with at all. Uh, and just, you know, Miles Ahead and, and Porky and Bess just, just... I've played those tunes throughout lockdown more than I've played anything else at all. I just... I just love that kind of lightness. I love that combination of, you know, improvisation and orchestration. Um, I, it appeals to me massively because I think, and I think they are quite light. I don't mean, I don't mean, you know, in the sense that they're not thought about, they're not felt, but there's it, a lightness there about them. And I think lightness in popular music is massively underrated. And I think heaviness is massively overrated, you know, because 
it, it, people people like to feel feel you're serious, and the thing <laughs> to make people happy is the hardest thing in the world in entertainment terms, you know, and uh, and uh, I think very often I think a lot of Miles Davis stuff that I think he spends a lot of his period, a lot of his career, going going down blind alleys in search of a kind of darkness, really, whereas this is this is the lighter side of him, mm. and. Um, I also, I, I wanted to mention it because I love it, uh, and also because I think it proves, <laughs> bears out what I've always thought, which is there's no such thing as new music. There's just old music you'd never heard before. Mm. Whether it's played by old people or new people, <laughs> you know, mm. nobody is inventing anything much in music today mm -hmm. they may be finding a way to do it in a different way and that's fine and that's perfectly valid you know the beatles didn't invent it bob dylan didn't invent it miles davis didn't invent it duke ellington didn't invent it they stood on the shoulders of other people mm -hmm. who'd come before and did some things slightly differently and they had a different kind of personality or a different kind of technology or whatever yeah. and so and so i I thought it was fantastic that the, the things that were bringing me most joy were these things done in, I don't know, 1958, 59 or something like that, that had been, had been sitting there in plain sight yes. all these years. <laughs> and I, I, just, I just never really stopped in them. I've, got, I've even got sketches of Spain and then I've got Kind of Blue and stuff like that. But I kind of missed this bit in the middle. This is a photographic memories, and uh, I think sometimes people confuse that with uh, uh, one of my favourite songs, or you know, um, uh, what is the coolest thing I listen to. Um, but the, I like the memory here is actually really recent. This isn't like you talking about, you know, forty years ago when you were a, a young, fresh teen going out in the world. This is like now lockdown, man. I had a lot of time on my hands. I was indoors all day, and do you know what really got me? It was Miles Davis, Miles Ahead. That's yeah, what it absolutely. was. Absolutely, yeah. I just I put it on. I put it on in the mornings, actually. I think I think it suits mornings better, mm. and uh, and maybe that's another thing about lockdown is that is that morning music is is more as so you, you want it more. Don't you? <laughs> uh, there's, there's no hurry to start the day, is there? <laughs> well, also you're not going anywhere, you know. Because I suppose it'll be interesting to examine this when this is all over. In the you know popular music, uh, you know, for the, certainly for the last. It is, well, since the Walkman, so when is that? Early 80s. Mm. Um, you know, music, and this is something I wrote about in you know my book about the long player, is that during the era of the long player, music was the thing you listened to while stationary because it, you, you were sitting in front of a record player, which mm. was tethered in the place where it was yeah. plugged in. Post-Walkman... Music is something you listen to while moving about. Music mm. is the thing you listen to while doing other things. And, uh, you know, that's it changes your relationship with music. Mm. It changes the kind of music that, that becomes popular. Uh, there's a, a very good book by uh, David Byrne from Talking Heads uh, called How Music Works. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's a, there's a lovely chapter in there where he's talking about... Um, uh, he, he starts talking about um, you know uh, personal stereos and, and jukeboxes and all that sort of thing, and then he, he does a really interesting bit about um, sort of bass music and how it's made for cars. 
Yes. You, know, you know those cars that you hear rumbling around your neighbourhood at four well, in the, the morning? The boot of that car is, <laughs> is, is a whopper. Yeah, totally. It just is. And it's, it's interesting because it, there is a whole genre of music that is basically made for that. And if you haven't got that car... It's just made to annoy people, yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, David. Nobody... No, seriously. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm not knocking out. I've, I've done my puny share of this when I was 17 or whatever. And the technology wasn't as well, well invented, well developed. But the joy of the person driving the car up and down the street with a, with a trunk full of woofer is not just his joy... It's that he's imp- impinging on your space as well. Yeah. You can't ignore my techno. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, you know, he wouldn't. He doesn't. It doesn't. Doesn't make him look very good. But you know that's what he feels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the way. It's similar to fifteen-year-olds playing playing music off a phone on a on bus. On a bus. Uh, the, which the worst. Is cute. Giving them no joy whatsoever, <laughs> other than the discomfort they're occasioning you. But this goes, I mean, this is an extension of, of something we all did growing up, which was when you were first getting into music and it was like, this is who I am. You know, whether that's a band t-shirt or now these days, like you say, playing your music out loud on your phone, not necessarily for your own benefit. It's to, sh- to, to shove your identity in other people's faces. We realise as we grow up that nobody actually cares. But when you're a teenager, that feels very... <laughs> very important when i was a teenager technology wasn't available to do that really <laughs> but you always had your rolling stones t-shirts and you know well you know around. you didn't listen you didn't <laughs> you didn't have any that stuff was not available what about had... walking around with your with your mono seven inch under your arm you must have done something to oh, show the LP. world oh really the lp yeah absolutely yeah. But carrying an LP through Wakefield bus station <laughs> <laughs> in, in the scale of kind of social you yeah. know, disruption is pretty low yeah. stuff. It's not quite it's not, not the same as bagging your Golf GTI, you know, waking <laughs> no, up half the town. That's, uh... it's not. But, yeah. but I like, you know, you do, a part, it's, it's a rebellion thing, isn't it? You do want to throw stones at society's window. And uh, I can remember, like, you know, turning my, st- if I didn't turn my stereo up loud enough for my mum to tell me to turn it down, then I wasn't really listening to music. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, yeah, but, but, but of course, the other thing nowadays, actually, do you know the the people? I mean, they don't live here at the moment, but on the occasions when they've lived here, the people who tell me to turn things down are my children, because, <laughs> because my children are not used to loud music being played openly. Because loud yeah, music yeah, is something goes straight into their ears. It's a private thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so habits. You know, the way we listen to music changes all the time, and it's technology that changes it. And, um, you know, and I find that I find that always interesting just to see how that changes. Mm -hmm. I don't feel any kind of great nostalgia for the way it was. You know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, experience that era. But, you know, nothing, nothing stays the same. And of course, the odd thing now is that the is that the the kind of 70s experience of sitting in a darkened room listening to Dark Side of the Moon by the light of a flickering candle is mm. is something that people try to always try to recreate mm. in in the modern world. And you think, what's the point? <laughs> it's kinda of gone, you know. Like I always it always intrigues me when I see the kind of Americana groups dressed up like hillbillies. <laughs> and I think 
you grew up in the era of the Apple Macintosh. Yeah. And, yeah. and those hillbillies, the original, they would have hated them. They would have hated oh, absolutely. Them. They would have oh, completely, considered them scruffy, idle uh, Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing new under the sun, as no. you said earlier. Um, David Hepworth, thank you so much for sharing your phonographic memories with us. It's been a real pleasure. Um, yeah. Are you able to share with us what your, your forthcoming book is about, or is that all under wraps? <laughs> <laughs> it's under wraps from me at the moment, really. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm just at the stage where I'm thinking about it, really. So, uh, no, nothing to announce as yet. Wow. I don't think I don't think I'll get serious about it until until this bloody war is over. Well, we can yes. we can look out for you on your book tour then. That's when we know. <laughs> yes, you'll you'll know. Ending. I'll be I'll be down your street. I'll be bothering your neighbours. <laughs> Please do. You'd be very welcome. And, and you're uh, still doing the old uh, the old podcast in the attic, are you? Oh yeah, good god, yeah. We did one this morning. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Martin, Martin Cameron and I haven't actually seen each other. We've seen each other once in real in real life in the last year but we we seem to be spending three hours a day talking to each other <laughs> via via the two cocoa tins and a bit of string which we all know as zoom fabulous well keep doing it david and thank you so much for sharing That's your memories right. with us today it's a real pleasure and uh, you know from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for all the brilliant writing that i've read and the editing you've done over the years at smash it's and mojo and all those other magazines because really, I think I speak for Anne as well, that, that those, those publications informed our lives mm. to a great extent. Well, I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Apologise to our parents, not us. Yeah, that, they were the ones that got the techno through the floorboards. So. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, David. Brilliant. Cheers. Bye. Dear listener, if you enjoyed listening to What Goes Around, then why don't you do yourself a favour and like and subscribe the show? You could even write a review if you like. And even more importantly, if you find all of that a bit of a trouble because you're a busy person, why don't you just hit the old share button? Why don't you just tell your best friend about what goes around? Why don't you take this nugget of audio joy and pass it on to another friendly soul? We could change the world one pair of ears at a time. Please, share, retweet, give it to someone else, spread it like a dirty disease. Mm-hmm.